0: After the Apocalypse, A Pandemic Survival Story, Season 3, Episode 2, Ossuary. The afternoon sun pulsed orange behind distant clouds as it sank towards the horizon like blood draining from a wound there was an earthy sickly sweet smell that lingered across the plaza chased by a lackluster breeze yeah we got some strange shit here the old man said as he examined the bone monument in front of the town courthouse agreed janet confirmed as she stole glances around the quiet buildings something doesn't feel right Did anything ever feel right now in the aftermath of the apocalypse? Every day they lived and breathed the apocalypse, up to their throats in the apocalypse, tortured by the omnipresent, drowning, universal death and emptiness that dripped from the dark world into their consciousness. The apocalypse was their new normal And, if he admitted it, that scared him. Sometimes, in his restive dreams, the realization that he was becoming accustomed to and comfortable with the death of the world scared him more than the dead world itself— Sometimes it seemed to the old man like those who died were the lucky ones. The dead were sanguine and peaceful. The survivors were not. The survivors were haunted and hunted. They had to trudge on through thick, dense, boggy swamps of grief, chaos, and violence. It was a crushing insanity to survive. Now— After six months of this horrific world, this terror-scape of madness, he still woke up every day wondering why he should keep going. Why? Why resist the pull of peace to be found in laying his body in that great pile of bones that was humanity's legacy? Why resist? They stood before what could only be described as a monument made of human bones. The long bones of hundreds of individuals were neatly arranged as a circular base. The pile was about six feet tall and tapered to a flat, mesa-like top that was decorated with dozens of leering skulls. Bell, the old man called." The dog trotted over and sat, looking up and waiting. "'Good boy!' The old man rubbed the big dog's head and looked around. He figured it would be best to keep the dog close until they figured out what was going on. Blibe Bill the dog sat on his haunches and watched. The old man considered the dog and spoke to Janet. "'Bill's not acting nervous!' I guess he's seen enough bones in his life, but that probably means we're alone here, too, at least for now. There were only a day or two hike from Paul's college. The old man had mixed feelings about being this close to their destination. Paul was the last of his children, the only one of his nuclear family that hadn't been accounted for. He hadn't seen Paul in almost three years. Their last meeting had been another argument that had ended with a promise of permanent estrangement. Paul hadn't wanted to see his father again. So why did he feel like he needed to find Paul, to find closure, to make amends, to tell him about his mother, to see if he was even alive after all this? why or was it simply a self-serving excuse to stay in this dead world a little longer was it paul or the goal of finding paul that he needed a goal that gave the old man a purpose having a why kept him on track and gave him a reason to get up each morning. Did he really think there was any chance of finding Paul now, six months into the apocalypse? It was surely folly, for all he knew, Paul's bones could be in this pile, right here, another anonymous death among the millions of anonymous deaths. The old man looked at Janet, and why was this woman... "'committed to helping him to the end of this quixotic journey. "'What was in it for her? "'Why was she struggling so mightily "'to hang on to her sense of right and wrong "'in the madness of it all?' "'His head buzzed. "'For most of his adult life, "'the old man had lived a structured, "'scientific and logical life. "'Now he was continually disoriented. "'Nothing made sense in the apocalypse.' He'd just have to keep moving, one day at a time, one step at a time, keep surviving like some brainless zombie and hope there was a point to it all somewhere. Now, in this world of chaos and confusion, they were confronted by this monument of insanity. The old man stepped forward, bent, and hefted a yellowing femur, examining it. With a tone of concern, Janet said, "'Look, there's that symbol again. How many times have we seen that since we've come close to this place? What the hell is all this?' The skulls arranged around the top of the pile had the same circle with the starburst motif drawn on the forehead frontal plates that they had encountered earlier painted on the road. The old man looked up. "'Looks like someone used a permanent marker.' Curiouser and curiouser. He met Janet's eyes and bent to scratch Bill behind the ears with his free hand. Well, Dodo, we're not in Kansas anymore. The old man looked at the bone in his hand closely, squinting at its texture and running his fingers over its surface. Honestly, I don't know what we're dealing with here. He held up the femur to her. Nothing particularly odd with the bones. No cut marks or anything. There's no trauma. Looks like someone just collected all the dead, cleaned the skeletons, sorted the bones, and moved them here, and made this... what? This monument? But why? Janet asked. I don't know, the old man said. I mean... It could be some sort of warning to outsiders, but why not just make a big sign that says, Keep out! And where are the survivors? Someone went to the trouble to do this. Where are they? Janet eyed the building suspiciously. Maybe they're hiding, watching us, or maybe they did this as their final act and left. The old man furrowed his brow as if searching for some elusive bit of information— "'You know, when archaeologists find something unusual,' he paused to correct himself, "'I mean when we had archaeologists. Anyway, when archaeologists found something they couldn't explain, they would label it as ceremonial, which, I guess, is a shorthand code for we have no way of knowing what motivated these people to build this thing.' He looked at Janet and tossed the bone back on the pile— "'Especially now, after the apocalypse,' he shrugged. "'Doesn't necessarily have to be rational. "'Maybe it's purely ceremonial.' "'Janet was lost in thought. "'She didn't like puzzles without solutions. "'It was in her nature to seek answers, "'to find the truth,' she would have said. "'The truth is what she held up "'with an almost religious zeal "'when she was a malpractice lawyer chasing a case.' Back then, she was like a dog with a bone and wouldn't give up until she found the truth. That passion, ferocity, and persistence made her unstoppable. Now she had this, this strange pile of bones, and her brain needed an answer, not knowing caught in her brain like a poison barb. It might not be rational, she said, but it's organized and consistent, "'And it must have taken time and effort.' "'She paused. "'This is more than the work of a single crazy person or even a couple. "'Maybe this means there's some sort of self-organization going on here. "'I mean, it's been six months. "'That's enough time for the survivors to start picking up the pieces.' "'Picking up the bones, you mean,' the old man said, only half-joking. "'Janet ignored him. "'Yeah, whatever.' You get my point. This monument, the consistency and the symbolism everywhere, even here on the skulls. There is some sort of tribe or organization, some intent here. Let's assume you're right, the old man said, that there is some sort of organization at work here. What kind of organization? Is it the county government, the local police force, the TVA, the Moose Lodge? or some group of kids in the Lord of the Flies scenario, he shook his head, I don't know, any normal civic organization would follow the plague playbook and bury these bodies, or burn them, and then get back to growing corn. This feels more like some bizarre religious thing. Maybe, she thought, this part of the country is, was, very religious, right?' Maybe this is some sort of offering to Jesus or something. She shook her head. No, that doesn't make sense either. I had a fairly textbook Christian upbringing, and I don't remember anything like this in the Bible. Closest thing I can think of is Zoroasterism, the old man said. But there aren't any of those here. He paused and continued. Throughout history, a very common response in religious societies when confronted by a plague, is to see it as the wrath of God. You know, God is mad, God is punishing humanity, that sort of thing. Then they try and figure out what God is mad about and stop doing that. He paused. Maybe they thought God was mad about bodies being scattered around. Just doesn't make sense, Janet said. But who knows what people are thinking now? Maybe it's something totally different. She shook her head and looked around again. We're not going to solve it today. The thing we need to focus on is, where are the people who did this? And are they a danger to us? I say we go with a dangerous assumption until we know differently. The old man looked around. We've only got a couple hours of daylight. Let's find some place secure to hold up for the night and leave this mysterious ossuary for another day. Okay, Janet agreed, but we still need to figure this out. We don't know if whoever is behind this poses a threat or maybe even offers an opportunity. We just don't know, and not knowing makes me nervous. The old man commanded Bill to the point, and they left the pile of bones, moving into the shadow of the courthouse building to find a safe place for the night. After a cursory exploration of the city center, they selected a taller apartment building as a potential place to spend the night. The front door was heavy metal with a thick safety glass window. The window had a white circular spiderweb of cracks from the impact of some violence, like it had been head-butted by a giant. One of the circle with the starburst symbols was spray-painted on the brick wall beside the door. The paint had run before it dried. The droplets were frozen in their downward tracks mid-flight, like a still photo of melting ice cream dripping from a kitty cone on a hot day. It was dark inside. The metal door screeched across chips of broken glass and concrete as they pushed it in. The sound made the old man wince like fingernails on a chalkboard. They sent Bill in first and followed cautiously. Stale air that smelled of desperation and death breathed out from within like the foul breath of a charnel house monster. They moved through the ground floor hallway. Only the low afternoon sun came through west-facing windows. The staleness smelled of greasy decomposition. Dust boats... "'floated in the slanting rays that broke through the open doorways across the hall. "'Nothing moved. The air was still as a tomb. "'This place felt like it had been abandoned for much longer than the six months of the apocalypse. "'The plan was to do a quick reconnoiter through the building and make their way to the roof. "'This building was the tallest in the area and would give the best view of their surroundings.' It was a high place to camp for the night. This building was one of those brick-faced apartment buildings, five floors tall, ten units to a floor, blocky, utilitarian, and grim. No doubt the vision of some urban planner bureaucrat in the 1970s, the solution to a housing crisis that seemed a laughable problem now. Built with the oil and graft of all municipal development, it was a generic building that could have been in any mid-sized city or aspiring suburb anywhere in the world. The old man had seen similar buildings on the outskirts of Albany, Nairobi, and Stalingrad. Generic storehouses for the working proletariat. As they began to search their way through the first floor, they discovered that the doors to the apartments were mostly open. Some appeared to have been forced. This place had been searched by someone. But who? You can see where the bodies were, Janet said as they investigated one of the apartments. Someone came in after they had been here for a couple of months and moved them out. It's strangely neat, the old man offered. Doesn't look like it's been looted. Nothing has been pulled apart. It looks like some things are missing, but it's all very tidy. Too tidy. Again, doesn't that point to some organization? Janet said. Why collect the bodies? Why be careful when doing it? She shook her head. We're definitely missing something. Let's keep moving up, the old man said, and they made their way to the darkened stairwell. THE NEXT FLOOR WAS THE SAME. DOORS FORCED, BODIES REMOVED, NOT MUCH DAMAGE. IT ALL WENT WITHOUT INCIDENT, UNTIL THEY FOUND AN ADDITIONAL MYSTERY. SOMETHING WAS TAKEN HERE. THE OLD MAN said ACROSS THE ROOM TO JANET AS HE POINTED TO AN EMPTY FOLDING TABLE IN THE CORNER OF AN APARTMENT ON THE SECOND FLOOR. It was an apartment of someone younger, judging by the jumble of anime figures, pizza boxes, and empty energy drink cans. The poster on the wall facing the desk was a big pie chart that announced why I lose the overwhelmingly largest slice of the pie. 80% was labeled, my teammates suck. The next biggest slice was lag at almost 20%, "'followed by the enemy team is too good at one percent "'and I'm bad at zero percent. "'Computers!' Janet said, looking around "'and gesturing to the rectangular voids and the dust on the table. "'There were some computers here.' "'She looked around at the carpeted floor. "'There's a chair missing, too. "'See those marks in the carpet?' "'Looters!' asked the old man. "'Sure, but what would you do with computers now?' Janet replied. "'Unless someone has a generator, like back at the D.C.' "'This place is creeping me out,' the old man said. "'I'm getting claustrophobic. Let's finish our recon and get to the roof for some fresh air.' They cleared the third and fourth floor. More of the same. Open doors. Empty apartments.' Strangely neat and eerily devoid of signs of life, they had more questions than answers. The bodies had been removed. Some selected items had been taken. It wasn't adding up. The door to the fifth floor hallway was ajar. Bill the dog stopped abruptly. He stared intently at the open door and growled low. Janet and the old man exchanged glances in the dim light. They readied their weapons and moved carefully to push their way into the hallway. The door moved, but there was a noise of clanking bottles and cans being pushed and dragged by the motion. It wasn't just random trash in the hall. Someone had tied empty cans and bottles to the door handle. There was noise and movement down the hallway— then, a figure burst out of one of the rooms into the dark hallway and sprinted away from them, screaming in a weird falsetto voice, "'Rabbit! Rabbit!' Bill barked and looked at the old man for instruction, straining, Foss. "'the old man commanded, and Bill leapt into pursuit of the fleeing figure. "'The old man followed as quickly as he could, "'but the dog was down the hall like a rocket "'and slammed into the fugitive with a furious clanking of bottles and cans. "'As the big dog leapt, the momentum carried Bolton to the door of the opposite stairwell before it could be opened.' The terrified man held his hands and arms up as he slumped down the door to protect his head. Bill tore at his sleeve. The man crumpled, babbling nonsense noises, weeping, and curled into a ball. Halt! The old man yelled as he and Janet hustled down the hallway. Bill released the man's sleeves and stood over him with the intensity of purpose that only working dogs can have. As the old man hustled down the hall to where the dog stood guard, "'Janet turned into the empty apartment that the fleeing man had come from, her rifle ready. "'She and the old man had been traveling the apocalypse together for months now, "'and they each knew what to do. "'She secured his flank without any words exchanged or required. "'Clear!' she yelled from the open door, exiting to rejoin the old man. "'He stood with the dog, looking down at the quivering wretch on the floor.' "'What have we got here?' she asked as she joined them. "'Looks like we found a survivor,' the old man said without looking at her." <laughs>
1: Things are getting crazy again in Season 3 of After the Apocalypse. I hope you're doing well. A couple updates for you. First is that I created two new pieces this week, and I'm adding them up to the feed. They will be backdated to show up first in the list of podcast episodes on Acast. Uh, The first one is an introduction. That it sort of explains what the podcast is, has directions to all the links so that people just starting the show can take advantage of that and they don't get lost. The second is a trailer, which I will play at the end of this outro for you as well so you see what it is. It's a two-minute clip to give people an idea about what the show is like, and if you could help distribute that clip, that would be great. If you know other podcasts or friends or whatever, that might be generate interest, please feel free to pass that along and I can send you the clip. I have both audio and video formats. Other than that, I'm working away, getting content created and trying to stay ahead of my deadlines. And to take you out today, I have a deep dive into one of the the formative TV shows and one of the early movies on that show that influenced many of the science fiction writers of my generation so enjoy this is called creature double feature and the movie is called them in the 1970s and 80s there was a tv show where i live in boston and it had a major influence on my generation it was called creature double feature or creature feature in some of the markets And it aired on UHF channel WLBI 56 up here in Boston on Saturday afternoons and sometimes after midnight on Saturday nights. And it was quite popular with the younger generation. This uh, this show, they showed campy science fiction and monster films from the 50s and 60s and hence the creature part of the creature double feature. And these were different times back then. In the zeitgeist of today, we would not consider any of these movies horror movies. They were made during the code years in Hollywood, and there was nothing censor-worthy about them. And they weren't particularly scary, and they weren't particularly even well-made, but they were different. And in that world of programmed sameness and pablum for the mass audience, different was good. And different attracted the teenagers like it always does. And you can't compare today's concept of small screen movie watching with what we were doing back then. It's a different world. So let's step back. Let's step into the Wayback Machine. Picture it it's 1978. A bored teenager lounges in a mustard yellow vinyl upholstered cube chair in front of a 27 inch TV. He has to stand up. He has to walk to the TV. He has to reach out and turn the knob to select the UHF spectrum. And then he has to spin around another knob to tune that channel 56 WLBI into focus. And he might have to bend those rabbit ears in the UHF antenna to see if the picture can be clearer. Or maybe he might experiment with a coat hanger antenna. So there are only three national network TV channels on the main spectrum of VHF. ABC, CBS, WBZ. There's also public television, but nobody watches that. But there's another, at least three additional channels on the UHF spectrum. And that's where the good stuff is. This is where the local stuff is. This is where the weird stuff is. And the UHF channels are the second-tier players. They have hockey games and bowling shows, and usually they go off the air at night. Yes, that's right. They went off the air. After somewhere around midnight, they just shut off the TV, right? After you saw that Godzilla versus Mothra, the national anthem would play, and it would go to a test pattern. But anyhow, back to our teenager... Satisfied that he's got the best picture quality he's going to get, he settles back in like a reclining spider into that vinyl box chair to watch the Creature Double Feature movies. And today's first feature is the movie Them from 1954. Only a teenager would have so little to do on a Saturday afternoon that watching a couple hours of monster movies was the top choice. And not feel guilty about it. And it was great. So they would have all the old creature films, like Creature from the Black Lagoon, and The Thing, and any movies that had a giant killer creature of some sort. All the old Roger Corman films, the universal horror movies. They also had the re-edited and dubbed Japanese monster movies from Toho Studios. And we all know Godzilla, but... These studios kicked out dozens of kaiju films with all kinds of different monsters. And yes, kids, all your kaiju anime started here with Japanese men in rubber suits destroying miniature cities in the Toho Studios 60-something years ago. So this movie, though, called Them, was about giant ants. And it made an impression on me and my cohort, even though we were watching it 25 years after it originally got made. I still remember the movie 40-plus years later, so there must be something good about it. Them is a movie, like I said, made in 1954 by Warner Brothers, and the film is based on an original sci-fi story treatment by George Worthing Yates. Them is one of the first of the 1950s nuclear monster films, meaning that the premise is that nuke testing creates these mutations And this was a common premise. They knew at the time that nukes caused mutation. And as you may know already, the entire Godzilla kaiju genre were nuclear monsters. They were created by bomb tests. And these movies voiced a very real anxiety that nuclear weapons, a force created by humanity, were beyond our control. And they would ultimately cause the end of the world. So basically, humans can't be trusted with this power. They have overreached, and it's going to end badly. Them is also the first big bug feature film to use insects as the monster. And this movie was supposed to be filmed in color and 3D. But when they started filming, the 3D camera malfunctioned, and they scrapped all of that and filmed it in black and white. After the fact, Warner Brothers went back and colorized the title sequence to add punch to it. But it was a black and white movie. The story for them is based in New Mexico, but it was actually filmed all around Los Angeles, California desert, and this was way before CGI. So these giant ants are life-sized animatronic puppets. Now, considering what they had to work with, they're pretty good. From today's CGI perspective, they're a bit comical. In the climactic scene, they use flamethrowers to destroy the giant ant nest. And these were actual World War II leftover flamethrowers. Hey, it was the early 50s, and there was a lot of excess war stuff. It was just around, you know, just laying around. Hey, Bob, can you run down to the Army Navy store on Santa Monica and get us a few of those (laughs) flamethrowers? It's still... It's still a watchable movie. It's dated, but not terrible. You can get parts of it on YouTube for free, but if you want to watch the whole thing, you have to rent it. I like the screenplay and the pacing of the movie. It takes its time revealing the monsters. The protagonists, they move through the desert, collecting clues to the destruction and the disappearances, and this makes the payoff much more fulfilling when the monsters, the giant ants, do show up. One of the memorable scenes early in the movie is when they find a little girl wandering in the desert, listlessly clutching a doll. And when the professor, there's always a professor, exposes the little girl to formic acid, she starts screaming, them! And again, we, we know there's something scary coming, but we don't know what. We only know it scared this kid catatonic. Good tension building. And the giant ants finally make their appearance in a sandstorm in the desert. And there's a gunfight, where our hero policeman shoots off the ant's antenna with a machine gun. Not sure why this remote police force had machine guns, but hey, it's the 1950s. It's America. Hey, Bob, while you're at us, get us a few of them machine guns, too. That's a good man. So that's a pretty good scene. We get to see the female lead, the professor's daughter, because there's always a professor's pretty daughter. She's cowering from the giant ants so they finally chase down those ants they kill the nest but two queen ants get away one goes to a cargo ship another one goes to the storm drains under los angeles and another scene i still remember is when they are interviewing a drunk who lives in storm drains about the ants and he starts singing make me a sergeant in charge of the beer great scene so, the main characters are James Whitmore, Edmund Gwen, Joan Weldon, and James Arness. And they do a laudable job of taking the movie seriously, which helps. But there are a couple other actors that might be familiar to you. The first is a very young Leonard Nimoy, as a soldier delivering a report. It's a really good standalone scene, he has dialogue. And the second is a younger Fess Parker. Who plays a pilot locked up in a Texas mental hospital for claiming to see ant shaped UFOs? And this appearance would be one of the reasons Disney selected Fess Parker to play Daniel Boone in that highly successful TV series. Another notable inside joke is the use of the Wilhelm scream. So, this is a sound effect from the Warner Brothers Library that was originally made <laughs> for a 1951 movie and is called, the label on it is Man Eaten by Alligator. And somebody found this. I'll, I'll play it for you right now. There it is. Them used this effect three times. And once you hear this scream, you won't be able to unhear it, and you'll recognize it in all the other movies it's in. George Lucas used it in all the Star Wars and the Indiana Jones movies. It's a bit of a Hollywood inside joke. As campy and schlocky as this movie is to us now, it was one of the top-grossing films for Warner Brothers that year. Think of it as like the 1954 version of Aliens. It was something that the audiences had never seen before. And think of what it took for somebody in 1954, to come up with this idea and then shepherd it through the production process to create this fairly credible movie. I mean, that's probably a story in itself. And it was memorable 25 years later for that teenager in the vinyl box chair wasting a Saturday afternoon on Creature Double Feature. And I think it still holds up after 68 years. So the lesson here, my survivor friends is that the crazy ideas and the crazy projects are the best ones if you can get them made. You just need someone with the vision and the passion to take them seriously. So I hope you enjoyed that commentary. Now you have some fun facts to beat your friends with at your next cookout. Here is the two-minute trailer I alluded to. Robert and I cooked it up. Enjoy it, and please help us by sharing. Shoot me an email, or hit me on Twitter or Facebook. Same username, C-Y-K-T-Russell, two S's, two L's, at gmail, and I'll send it to you if you need it.
0: After the Apocalypse, a pandemic survival story. A blood-orange sun drops slowly into the smoking landscape of a ruined city. A virus has killed 95% of the population in gruesome, choking deaths. An old man runs. He and a large dog come to a stop amid piles of human corpses that have rotted to mere bags of bones and spreading stains on the pavement. He aims his crossbow at a moving shadow. A woman joins them. She is strong and angry, looking for retribution. Three survivors in a world of chaos and death. And they are looking for someone. Is their will to live stronger than the forces of chaos and evil that thrive as a new world tries to emerge from the wreckage of the old... After the Apocalypse, a pandemic survival story. Available anywhere podcasts are found.
1: We'll talk to you next week. Until then, keep.